If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com Spotify or use the code Spotify at checkout. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. From London's rowdy music halls to the bright lights of 19th century Broadway, the singer and performer Emily Soldine rocked the Victorian stage. Behind the scenes, she led an equally extravagant life, mingling with the best and brightest of 19th century society. But as Helen Batten, the author of a new biography of Emily, told me, the singer's success was hard won and difficult to hold on to. Could you very briefly introduce us to the subject of your new biography, Emily Soldine? Basically, when I was little, my nana always used to tell us about um, this famous actress in our family called Lady de Fries. But she didn't know anything more about her. And I, I used to say, was she a, is she a real lady, nana? And, and nana always used to sort of look a bit quizzical and say, no, I don't think a real lady, dear. <laughs> But we knew nothing more about her. Um, And it was only years later when I had to do some family research for a previous book that I was talking to the um, historian of the local ancestral village. 
And he said, well, of course, you've got the famous singer in your in your family. And I didn't know who he was talking about. He said, Google Emily Soldine. And I Googled her and I was absolutely blown away because she has, there's this woman who came from a very ordinary background um, who managed to become not only um, uh, a leading singer in musical, but then an opera star and then a producer and director and then an impresario. And to cap it all, she wrote her memoir and it was one of the best-selling books of 1898. And I I, I Googled her, um, I, I Googled the book and I managed to get her memoir three days later, which was extraordinary. So yes. And I would encourage anybody listening to do the same and Google Emily because I think there's some incredible pictures, aren't there, of her, which really give you a sense of her strength. And she really radiates a vibe, doesn't she, from those pictures? Yeah, I mean, she was she was obviously an absolutely huge character and rather sort of shameless. And she was <laughs> she was very curvy. She absolutely loved her food and and became curvier as the years went on. And she just she just rocked it. She just stood there in her outrageous outfits, her tight doublets, her big boots, her big hats, her tights. And, and yeah, it was like, look at me. I am what I am. So, yeah. So you mentioned um, before that Emily came from a fairly ordinary background. So let's talk about her upbringing. What do we know about her family? Well, I say ordinary background. Actually, it was, mm. it was pretty precarious background. She was the illegitimate daughter of a bonnet maker called Priscilla, um, in Clerkenwell. Her mother, it's very shadowy who her father was, but they they weren't married and they never married. And Emily was sent to the, back to the ancestral village in Hertfordshire to be brought up by her grandmother, who was the landlady of a pub. Incredibly colourful cast of characters, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think her grandmother must have been quite formidable and she writes about her in her memoirs and her in, in her columns. And uh, yeah, so she grew up in a pub basically. And she had a very large extended family, which included my great-great-grandfather, who was her favourite uncle. Um, But then she came back to London. Her mother finally married a man who was not um, her father, who was actually married to somebody else, um, who was a bigamist, who lived around the... His other family lived around the corner, so they must have known each other. And her mother had um, another child, a half-sister for Emily, called Clara. Um... Yes, yeah, so it was uh, it, it, it was a complicated, slightly chaotic upbringing, I think. Um, and what do we know about her entry into the world of entertainment? Um, she ran away to get married when she was very young. She eloped. And the sense is that she regretted it quite quickly and found herself um, very poor. Her husband wasn't really going anywhere. They were having to live with her mother in a very small lodging in Clerkenwell. And I think she was very, very scared about about the workhouse. Do you get the sense that she ran away for love or perhaps to escape her family situation or is it unclear? Um, I think she didn't want to follow in her mother's example. So when she met a man, I think she didn't want to get pregnant without having a ring on her finger. And Jack Powell, her husband, had uh, very illustrious connections. So his father was a journalist who was really good friends with Charles Dickens. And also her husband's brothers were in with the pre-Raphaelites, were on the edge of that pre-Raphaelite brotherhood circle. And Emily used to go around to the, uh, to the brotherhood's house. And so she, she entered into a world that she could only have dreamt of, really. And I think she felt that when she married, she would enter this world. 
but it didn't work out like that. She was ostracized from, from Jack's family. Um, and yeah, she found herself living, living in the, with her mum, basically with very little money. And she kept and having lots of children very quickly. So I think she was quite scared. How did she end up on the stage then if she went from a young mother living with her own mother to this somewhat more glamorous lifestyle that you might not expect? Uh, well, it was sheer envy. Um, she, she always had had a good voice um, and been fascinated by the theatre. But she read a review of Adelina Patti, who was a world-famous singer at the time, uh, of her, her London debut. And she was struck down by sheer envy and the thought that this should be me. I could do that. Why not me? Um, and she took herself off to uh, the house for singing, a very famous singing instructor, knocked on the door um, and got herself singing lessons. Um, where she got the money for those singing lessons is slightly unclear, but the landlady grandmother had died that year and was quite, and was relatively wealthy. And I think maybe she'd used a legacy to pay, to invest in having a singing career. So what kind of entertainment did Emily become involved in? Was it musical? Was it theatre? Was it burlesque? Was it opera? Well, she started off on the, um, her singing teacher was um, from a very famous uh, acting family and had great connections and was a composer. And she wanted to be a concert singer. Um, and he put her onto the concert stage and she was getting good reviews and singing. She had some very good gigs, although she had terrible nerves. Poor Emily, she suffered from nerves all her life. But she was doing okay, but she wasn't getting paid. And um, and then she got sent off for a light opera audition at Haymarket, and she didn't get taken on. And so after 18 months not being paid, it musical was the only option for her. And I don't think she wanted to go into musical because it had a very bad reputation. I mean... Singing in itself was not great. Um, you know, ladies who put themselves onto the stage were seen as sort of little better than prostitutes, really. Um, but she'd sacrificed her reputation. And actually, in the end, it was more important for her to go on the stage. <laughs> so, she, so she went for musical. But, but she, she did it by changing her name to Miss Fitzhenry to try and create yeah. some sort of distance and keep open the opportunity to go into opera at some later date. So so you mentioned there that musical didn't have the best reputation. Can you give us a sense of what um, a night out at the musical might be like in, in the era that Emily was performing there? Yes, yeah, so she started out in the 1860s in the musical. And at that time, musical had just really taken off. Uh, the Canterbury had opened, um, which was, the sort of the, the father of the musical, Charles Morton, had opened this huge uh, pub. He'd converted it into a musical, and it seated about two thousand people. Um, and that's, that's huge. huge. It, it, it was huge, and it had a big picture gallery. So it was a bit. It was sort of a night out with a bar and food, and you sat at tables at right angles to the stage. It was full of noise. It was full of smoke. It was rowdy. Generally, musical was a music was a, a working class uh, destination, entertainment destination, and the uh, repertoire was tailored to, to, to popular culture, that sort of lower class popular mm. culture. But actually some musicals, like the Canterbury, would also attract a sort of bohemian, middle class, and evil, even upper class young gentleman about town who liked to sort of feel a bit edgy. 
and hang out there. And what kind of performances would Emily be doing? Was it straight singing performances or was there an element of kind of narrative or performance in it as well? Well, the thing is about Emily is that she wasn't the best singer around. She didn't have the most beautiful voice. She had a very strong voice, but her USP was she could really convey emotion in her singing. She had great musicality. She was a great actress. And she became famous for tragic ballads. So she would she would move people to tears. She would get on stage and quite often patriotic songs about the Crimean War. Um, and yeah, she became very famous very quickly for these rousing, stirring, moving tunes. It wasn't until about five, six years later that she actually got a chance to act. And um, she ended up getting the role, her first role as an actress was as Captain McHeath in The Beggar's Opera. Um, And she found her niche really playing men. She was very good. She wasn't very good at the sort of simpering, winsome heroines of the time. She was a commanding, she had a low voice, and she she loved striding around the stage. So she played Captain McHeath and uh, it was was a, a turning point for her because people could see that she could act and also that she could be comic as well as tragic. Mm. And from there, her career took off. And the next part she played was um, a part specially made for her in a big pantomime in the Whitechapel um, Music Hall, which was huge and incredibly popular. And she was playing in Aladdin, and they didn't quite have the right part for her, so they created one, King Sparkletto. (laughs) She had a massive crown (laughs) and sang some the best songs, and, and she was a complete triumph. And they absolutely loved her. So, yeah. How important was was celebrity performers in this era? Was there a sense that you would go to a performance because somebody you really liked was in it? Or was celebrity not as important as it is today? Oh, no. I, I, it was, it's been really interesting researching the book because there was absolutely a celebrity culture. And as an actress or a singer, you really had to control your brand. You had to think about your brand and create a fan base and people you were hired because of your name because what happened was if you had fans they would come night after night after night and and those were the and, the, and it was generally men they were the people who would fill uh, a theater or a music hall and your fan base would and yeah so, so it was very important the culture of celebrity and writing being interviewed uh having photos taken of yourself, all these things really helped to build up your name and get bums on seats, basically. Well, something um, that I find really interesting that you say in the book is that Emily didn't just want to sing. Yes, she wanted to sing, but she didn't just want to sing or make money. She wanted to be famous. How can we see that playing out? She absolutely loved gossiping. She loved parties. She loved travelling. Um... She had no fear of mixing with people well out of her social, normal social range. She really very much enjoyed the company of men. She loved gambling. She was very big on the horses. I I mean, in her memoir, she says that her art all her life was everything to her. But there is no doubt that the things that came with that, she really, really enjoyed to the full. And food above everything else. 
all her meals listed in these enormous, extravagant, rich feasts that she used to have. So she was able to really transform her life from, as you say, a really precarious upbringing where money would be quite scarce, I'm imagining, to living the extravagant high life. Absolutely. I mean, she was surrounded by the peers of the realm, the politicians, the journalists of the day, the the most interesting men of the day. She would be having supper with, going to parties with, going to Brighton for long weekends, sailing with, and yet being right at the centre of the most important city in the world at the time. When did Emily's career reach its peak, as it were? You mentioned that she she started acting and that really took things to the next level. What came next for her? She always wanted to go into opera and to sort of more serious music. And she finally got her chance um, with Offenbach's new light operas that were coming over from Paris and became very very popular. The problem was the provincial theatre owners weren't keen on Emily becoming the... They didn't think she had the right name to draw in the fans for these Offenbach operas. And Emily always took every opportunity that came her way. And what happened was uh, one day, Julia Russell, who was playing um, the Grand Duchess in Offenbach's new opera, fell out really badly with her leading man, stormed off, and at a few hours' notice... They needed to find someone to take her place. Um, and they sent a carriage round to Emily's house in the early hours of the morning, knocking at the door, can you come and play this part? And she said yes. And with only a few hours rehearsal, wearing costumes that didn't fit, with a leading man who apparently was whispering obscenities in her ear the whole time on stage, <laughs> she, she, was, she completely nailed it and was a triumph. Brilliant reviews. And from then on, she was hired and became the leading lady of these opera booths. She also later became the manager of her own theatre troupe. So she was a fairly canny business person as well then, is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the thing is, she she had enough work. I mean, it is curious why she would take on that responsibility of producing, directing, and then start risking her own money, um, taking the tenancy of big London theatres like the Lyceum, um, and, and owning her own production company. I mean, it's a risk that she she didn't need to take. Um, but I suppose I looked to her mother, who was a bonnet maker, who owned her own bonnet making business, um, and also her grandmother, who was a landlady and owned her own pub. And therefore, I think that some of this business acumen must have rubbed off on her. And and yeah, she wanted to be the boss. And also, that meant she could cho- she could choose what production. Uh, was put on and she could put herself in the lead role. So I think it was a a way of managing to stay in this career for as long as possible. Was that fairly unusual at the time for a woman to to lead a theatrical troupe? No. I mean, it's unusual for a woman to own a business in the Victorian era. Mm -hmm. Terribly difficult, not least because legally you weren't allowed to... um, I mean, you were the property of, of your husband. You couldn't open a bank account, you couldn't take out a loan. I mean, all those things that are really necessary to run a business were, were closed for women in, in uh, Emily's time. Um, but theatre is one of the few areas where women did become producer-directors 
and owners and of their own production company. They nearly always did it with their husbands. And of course, Emily did have a husband <laughs> who became her manager, although I, don't, I think he was manager in name only. I mean, she really did wear the trousers and he did what he was told. But he was like the business front. So he took out the loans in his name and, and that enabled her to do it. But that partnership of husband-wife team running a production company was, yeah, was, it did happen. I mean, it wasn't normal, but yes, she wasn't alone. Was her troupe successful? Incredibly successful at first. <laughs> so she, um, she, she did really, really well for a few years. And I think her biggest moment of triumph was when she took, I mean, she did very well in London and then toured the country as they all did through the summer. It was a triumph there. And this is in the early 1870s. And then she decided to go to America and conquer Broadway, which was, again, not uncommon. If you were doing well in Britain, the next step would be to go to America, as it is today. Um, and she took them over to America and they were just the most enormous hit to the extent that there was a range of soldine clothes brought out. She, her face was put on the sauce bottle of America's favourite sauce at the time. Um, and uh, yeah, she had an amazing time touring the States and then going to Australia and New Zealand as well, who'd never seen a troupe like it before and they absolutely loved her. So for, for about 10 years, she was doing very, very well. And then Gilbert and Sullivan came along <laughs> and, and basically um, came up with this new style of light opera that was much less racy, very British. Opera Booth was, was French um, and seen as continental. Um, and immediately Offenbach's operas fell out of fashion. And because Emily was so identified with them, she fell out of fashion too. Also, the other big factor was she was getting older and there was huge ageism in the, in the theatre. Um, I mean, much worse than there is even today. You know, it, it was a real thing. And um, she just was absolutely lampooned and had to withstand the worst sort of um, reviews. They, she was called ghastly and take take the corpse off the stage. And and it was, it was pretty horrific. Um, <laughs> she was once called the very incarnation of vice. Um, oh. And it was it was because it was seen as very unseemly to be playing those sort of racy characters in your 40s. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The stereotype of a Victorian woman is very much a sort of passive um, lady who doesn't have agency and is kept in the private sphere and is the basically owned by her husband or whatever male relation is closest to her. I think Emily just turns this on its head and basically if you had the determination and were prepared to sacrifice respectability and security, then, then you could have agency and a life of your own. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. 
Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about Broadway in the 19th century, because that sounds like a fascinating world. What did Emily make of it? She absolutely loved it. I mean, as soon as she arrived, she with, literally within hours, she'd taken herself off to Delmonico's, which was the place to eat and be seen. And she was eating oysters and champagne. <laughs> and she loved, she took an anthropological interest in, in the world and other countries and other cultures. Um, very much the way that Victorians did when they travelled. And she, uh, I mean, American women, she was fascinated by and, and incredibly rude about. But she just thought they had the most terrible accents. They were stick thin. Um, they stared at you very rudely. They uh, they pretended never to drink, except they left the bottles of empty booze outside their, like ostriches, <laughs> leaving the empty bottles outside their hotel room doors. Um, and they got, she said that the Soldine troupe, uh, herself included, got were called the beefy Britishers. Um, her weight was a constant theme. Um, when she was down in Texas, they were very well received, but um, she was criticised for, for her weight. And she said, not all of us can be as thin as a stoke nailed to a barn door. <laughs> so Emily was touring the world, but it's worth mentioning, isn't it, that she actually had four children. So how did she approach motherhood? Well, th this is this one of the things that I struck me researching the book was how actually the idea of motherhood in the Victorian era is so different to what's expected today. Um and this, in a way, freed her up when it came to being a mother. As long as you uh, provided food, shelter, um, that's, that was really your job as a mother. 
And it didn't matter if you weren't actually doing it physically yourself. You weren't expected to have a relationship with your child. Um, you were just expected to make sure they survived in some way or paid someone else to do it. So this left Emily free. Um, she bought a big house in Staines. She got her mother to move in and, and also brought some servants down from the local village in Hertfordshire where she'd grown up and waved goodbye to her children and sometimes didn't see them for three years or so when she was touring America, um, Australia, New Zealand. And the idea that you could just set off without a return ticket, no idea when you were coming back, no communications, means of quick communications with your children. And that'd be perfectly okay. Yeah, I can't imagine a celebrity mother today doing that and not coming under huge uh, fire for it. Mm. Well, I mean, there were there were actresses who did have children, um, and often if they didn't have the means, they would have, the children would have to go touring with them, and that was an incredibly hard life and not good for them at all. So, in that sense, Emily would be seen to be being a good mother, in that she was had bought a home for them and, and she wasn't taking them with her. Emily's sister Clara, who you mentioned right at the beginning, her half sister, was quite a bit younger than her and was also a really famous actor what can you tell us about their relationship and it, how it changed or developed over the years well it's, it's been fascinating the relationship with her half-sister clara clara vasey she became known when she went onto the stage um she was uh conventionally prettier than emily she, she was very very tiny she had a beautiful voice very very high soprano so they had quite different sorts of voices but they were incredibly close. They were each other's best friends. And Emily, as soon as Clara was old enough, Emily had had bought Clara up to, to a large extent. And as soon as Clara was old enough, she took her touring with her. And she writes about the first tour she she goes on. She takes Clara with her. And she said, what an, what an amazing time they had, reading novels together, staying in bed late, away from the, the maternal authority. Um... And as soon as she became um, a producing director, she brought her own sister in to pay, um, to, and, and that was Clara's entry onto the stage. So often to play parts opposite Emily as Emily's love interest, <laughs> which you know, might seem a bit curious to us today. <laughs> so often Emily was the hero and Clara would be her, the heroine and there'd be a sort of love thing going on between them. Now, um, I'm sure Emily was aware that sisters sort of making love to each other on stage was a sort of mm. cue for lesbianism. And the um, Victorian gentlemen found this very intriguing. And so this would only add to their sort of their popularity. I mean, Emily was unashamedly used her sexuality, the sexuality of her half-sister, and in fact her whole chorus troupe <laughs> to get male so fans. She, she knew how to play the game then. Absolutely. And... Clara um, was photographed a lot because you know she she was she was pretty and young, and there was a real um, fashion for actresses to be photographed in sort of erotic poses with all sort of erotic signifiers that Victorian gentlemen would recognise with sort of a plume in their hat holding a shepherd's crook with one leg raised. You know, I mean. <laughs> They were clothed, whatever. Victorian erotic tests, tastes are quite interesting. But yes, she, Clara did work that. 
quite successfully. <laughs> Later in life, Emily moved away from the stage a bit and she became a writer, a reviewer and a gossip columnist, which seems like a role she was born to do. What were her columns like? I'm guessing you've read a few of them. I mean, she's incredibly prolific because for 11 years, she wrote, um, she wrote a weekly column um, and for, for Australia's largest newspaper. So she was their London correspondent. And it, it's, it was an incredible opportunity for her because she could write about whatever she liked. And actually, how many Victorian working class women get to write, have a public voice, can express an opinion and write about whatever they like, often at great length. Um, so every week she wrote about something and a and, and huge variety. So, you know, often it was about her personal life very often about politics or gossip or the latest party that she'd been to or the latest craze in hemlines. Scientific technological advances really fascinated her. So she writes about the first time she goes on the tube. She writes about the motor car, aeroplanes. Um, and so you get this real insight into what it's like living in Edwardian London, at, viewed from a woman who's working class and yet still mixing in the best circles. Um, yeah, fascinating. She she also wrote a sensational memoir. Why did it cause such a stir? Her memoir, I'd like to just roll slightly back to the novel that was published two years before that. She actually wrote a novel. It's not a very good novel, but it's interesting in that's the only one that she wrote. And I think that if you only write one book generally there's a message you want to get across and the message that comes across in this I think it's the worst piece of Emily's writing normally she's a fantastic <laughs> writer but there's something quite heavy about this um it was about abortion which was absolutely shocking in in the time that she was writing nobody wrote about abortion I mean it was happening but nobody was it just was never mentioned and she mentions mm. it and the whole book is about a young girl who gets pregnant by accident with a man who basically seduces her but is already married and then she has an abortion. And was that novel published? Oh yeah, Young Mrs Staples. You can get that on Amazon as well. <laughs> but, but, and that was published two years before her memoir. And in that, she very bravely puts forward uh, the, the idea that women and men's sexual desire is equal. Women have the same sexual desire as men, which for Edwardian, well, late Victorian Britain was completely unheard of. And that for that reason, women should not be stigmatised uh, for having extramarital um, encounters, that actually men who have affairs should be outed um, and their affairs should be made public. Mistresses should be made public and not stigmatised. This is a fact of life that any babies born illegitimately should have the same legal right as legitimate children. Um, and yes, should be recognised by their fathers. Now, of course, this was incredibly personal for Emily. She, all her life, she had hidden her illegitimacy and she never even brings it out, even in her memoirs. So this is like very personal. Two years later in her memoir, she does exactly what she preaches in the novel, in that she outs all the respectable, great and good men who are having affairs with actresses. She names and, and was, shames. And they were named. Named. In lists. There are lists of, of all the men who hung around 
and and all the things they got up to and yeah basically it was it and it's no wonder that it it, it was a bestseller it it was scandalous and 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 at the time it was like the first real kiss and tell memoir that actually named people was there a backlash to that well, she obviously knew that it was going to be tough because she went to Australia for its publication <laughs> and there were threats of lawsuits, but they never happened because everything she wrote was true. I think I think finally, Emily obviously had a hugely colourful um, and exciting life. But what do you think that her story can tell us about the 19th century more generally, perhaps about celebrity and uh, working class women's lives? Well, I came to the conclusion that it was it was perhaps possible to do things as a Victorian woman that that, that the stereotype of a Victorian woman is very much a sort of passive um, lady who doesn't have agency and is kept in the private sphere and is the, basically owned by her husband or whatever male relation is closest to her. I think Emily just turns this on her head on its head and basically if you had the determination and were prepared to sacrifice respectability and security then then you could have agency and a life of your own um it's interesting she never remarried after her husband died which she could have done and she never moved in with her sister clara who'd married very well by then or her daughter who marry very, very well, and that the normal path for a widow would be to to sort of retire and live comfortably with rich relations. But she always provided for herself and always worked and lived in a boarding house. She 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 chose independence. That was Helen Batten. Her biography, The Improbable Adventures of Emily Soldine, actress, writer, and Victorian rebel, is out now. Published by Allison and Busby. If you enjoyed my conversation with Helen, you might also like a feature that's on our website about some of the most spectacular acts on the Victorian stage. Just search for the weird and wonderful world of Victorian entertainment. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us next tomorrow when Nicholas Frank will be speaking about his father, the leading Nazi Hans Frank. <laughs>